So I've been thinking back on what we've been seeing so far uh, in this letter uh, and uh, kind of what we've seen as we've been moving through Paul's second uh, letter here to Timothy uh, is a number of things. Um, you know, t- in that first week, we looked at the fact that Paul is, is talking to Timothy about this desire to leave a legacy. And, you know, Paul's, uh, I, I said that first week, and I think it's important for us to remember the, the, the historical context of, of Paul's letter and, and what's going on in his life as he writes this. So Paul is under arrest, uh, he is imprisoned, and he's awaiting execution. And so one of the things I said is you, you notice as you read this letter that Paul's tone is drastically different than a lot of his other uh, letters. He's, he's a lot more contemplative. Uh, he's more encouraging, even probably more so than he normally is. And he's, he's just reflecting on what God has done. And so he's writing to Timothy, this, this pastor in Ephesus that he loves, that he discipled, that he personally had left in Ephesus to continue to lead the church after he, he had moved on. And, and he's saying to Timothy, this young pastor, he's writing to this young church, and he's, he's just reminding them of h- how important it is Right, to not just have uh, their current uh, circumstances in mind, to not just look at the day ahead, although that's important, but to, to remember that to live a life that is meaningful for Christ is to have a much bigger picture than just the present circumstances that they're in. And so he, he reminds Timothy in, in, in chapter 1 of the importance of, of what it means to leave a legacy for Christ so that your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and their children's children after them right, might hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. He talks about the hope of finding your soul satisfaction in Christ and allowing your identity to be rooted in that and then to stand firm in that even in the midst of persecution. And, and encouraging Timothy that even in the midst of imprisonment and awaiting his own execution, that his hope is firm in Christ. He moves on to talk to Timothy about this, this call to be strengthened overall in the grace that comes from Jesus. How there's this constant need to both be reminded of who we are in Christ and be reminded that Christ's grace will be sufficient for us in the future. And then last week, Pastor Daniel just unveiled for us this call to flee youthful passions and rightly divide the truth. And so Paul's desire as as Timothy reads this letter, and I think for us too as we read it some 2,000 years later almost, is one, he wants to help Timothy grow as as a pastor, but he wants to see in this church in Ephesus leaders raised up and trained that love Jesus and love others. And he wants to encourage Timothy and and subsequently us as well to to lead and care about others the way that God desires us to. And in that, we're going to care about things like doctrine. We're going to care about rooting out false teachers so that God might grant them repentance. But ultimately, and this is what we're going to see this morning, Paul desires for the church, not just the church in Ephesus, but for the church at large, the church universal, to engage the world around us distinctly. Right? God deeply desires that we as his people are distinct from the culture and the world around us. 
And so we're going to see three ways in which Paul encourages Timothy that we can engage our culture and be distinct this morning. And so let me share those three things with you. They'll be up here on the board or the screen. Uh, And then we're going to pray and dive into the text this morning. But these are the three things we'll see this morning. We're going to see that we need to understand what the Bible says about the deceptiveness of sin and how to approach it. We're going to be called to be on guard against sinfulness and what that might look like. And then we're going to be reminded that God's truth always prevails. So let's pray that God might enable us to understand what he would have for us this morning and might encourage us to respond to his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ways in which you have blessed us, even when we don't see it. And God, one of those primary blessings is the fact that you have preserved your word for us in the midst of hostile cultures, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of global and world disasters, that your word has remained for us. God, would you use it this morning to encourage us to follow you, to love you, and to know that we are yours. Lord, will you reveal sin this morning and grant us repentance? And will you encourage us and equip us and empower us to be your hands and feet to the world around us? Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you promise you will do those things. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, and, and, and this first part, it's going to kind of logically flow through these nine verses as we look at them this morning. Uh, but we're, we're going to see and, and, and know, Paul's going to point out to Timothy that, Timothy that we need to understand what the Bible says about the deceptiveness of sin. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit more in just a minute. But one of the things I want to, to say before we look at this first verse is, guys, there's a reason why people get pulled into habitual patterns of sin. It's not, it's not an accident. If overcoming our sinfulness and overcoming our propensity to do evil was easy, everyone would do it. Amen? Right? Like we, would, we wouldn't find ourselves in these patterns. And so what, what happens is that sin is really deceptive and the way that it kind of works is it, it, it exposes you to a little bit to then pull you down into a lot. And that's how it works over time. And you're going to even see that in kind of the the categories of sinfulness that Paul points out in these first five verses. But let me just read verse one for you. He says this, and again, he's addressing Timothy. And remember, he's just got done telling him, flee your youthful lusts and passions and uh, uh, correctly divide the word of truth, right? So with this in mind, he says, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, that word last days tends to throw people off a lot. Because when we read that, we're going to believe that it's some far off period in the future that the author is referring to. But the New Testament writers, and because Paul's not the only one that refers to the last days, the New Testament writers understood this to be any time after Jesus' birth, but especially after his resurrection. And so if we understand what Paul is saying here is he's referring to right then and now. 
When, he, when he's writing to Timothy, he's like, Timothy, you are living in the last days. And I think something important for us to remember as the church in 2021, we are living in the last days. We don't know how long the last days are, but we are living in them. That the church is living in the last days. And so biblically, right, when we see that terminology, we can know that not only is the author referring to uh, the, the intended audience at that time, but he's likely referring to us as well because there's going to be things that we can infer and take from it as well. And Paul's warning to Timothy is this. Timothy, there are difficult times ahead for you, And for God's people, there are difficult times ahead. And as I have said time and time again, this is a consistent warning from Paul throughout his New Testament letters. There are going to be difficult times ahead. And this is one of those things where I love the church in the U.S. I'm a product of it. I pastor a church in the U.S. But I think this is one of those areas where in the the West in particular, we we tend to miss the mark sometimes. We present uh, the gospel and we present following Jesus as if, just come to Jesus, lay all your problems and troubles on him, and you'll never struggle again. I don't see that in the New Testament. Right? Jesus' call is to take up your cross and follow him. If you don't know what that means, it means he's calling you to be willing to lay down your life and suffer for him. Paul consistently says you must suffer for the cause of Christ. He warns Timothy of the, the coming destruction and danger that awaits them. And so there's this consistent warning to us, and I think we need to be made aware of this, especially since most of you guys in this room are in your early 20s. You've got a lot of life left to live. And I do you no good by promising you everything is going to be great from here on out. You're going to experience loss. You're going to experience hurt. You're going to experience betrayal. I mean, guys, we just lived through 2020. Life is hard, amen? Those are things that not only should we... um, like be ready for, but we should expect it to happen and be ready to honor God with the way we live our lives. And this is what Timothy is pointing out. He's saying to, that Timothy is having pointed out to him by Paul. Paul is saying, look, Timothy, difficulty awaits you. Be ready for it. That, that you are going to experience a shockwave of division and trouble both outside the church and inside the church, and you need to be ready to lead God's people in that so that God's people are distinct and different and can point people to Christ. So be ready for it. Now, if we look ahead, we're going to see Paul list a ton of various sins to look out for in the culture around us. But I want to pause, and I want to take a moment so that we can all have a biblical understanding of what sin is, so that we might understand why God calls us as his people. If you are a professing follower of Jesus here this morning, so that you might understand why God calls you, why God calls me to be distinct from the world around us. So when, so when we use this word sin, that's not a, a term that's used regularly throughout Uh, everyday life anymore. But when you hear that word sin, in the Greek, it's the Greek word hamartano, and it means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. So if an archer was shooting at a target and missed the mark regularly, they would say, oh, that that archer is sinning. He's regularly missing the mark, right? 
when used in conjunction with God's scriptures and God's law, what we see the, the New Testament writers trying to tell us is this. God has a standard. God has a standard of character that he desires and demands of his people and his followers. And he cares deeply about us meeting and following that standard. Now, we believe that Scripture teaches that no one meets that standard. Right? I, I would term it as, as total depravity, but you can use different terminology. Right? But that, that God's Word teaches this. Human nature is thoroughly corrupt and sinful as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So when I say like, hey, you're messed up, but it's okay because I am too. That, that, that would be the, the simple way of saying that. That scripture teaches all of us, yeah, you're messed up pretty badly. And your nature is thoroughly corrupt in comparison to God and his standard and his holiness. And I want you to think about it this way. If you think back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, when God created Adam and Eve, when, when you get to the climax of that story and, and God places Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? he says, right, the Trinity is talking amongst themselves, and he says, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And one of the things that's distinct and unique about you as an image bearer of God is that when God created the human race, he put the human race here to rule and reign and have authority the way that he would if he were walking the globe. That, that when, when Adam is naming the animals, there's something important going on there. That Adam is doing that with the authority given to him by God because of his unique image-bearing attributes. And so therefore, all of us in this room this morning have value and dignity because we're created in the image and likeness of God. But when you get to Genesis chapter 3, you see Adam and Eve throw aside the proper order of governance that God has established, right? That God is over them and that they are over the planet. And you see them submit to Satan and basically, by sinning in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve say this, we know better than God. We know better than him. We know what we're doing. We don't need God. If you don't believe me, ask Will over here. Graham, excuse me, sorry. I'm so used to it being Will. He's probably down the hall doing the same thing, right? And so God, right, gives Adam and Eve what they want. Right? Adam and Eve say, God, we don't need you. We can do our own way. We, we can be our own God. And so God banishes them from the garden. He banishes them from his presence. And in that, right, you see right before they're banished that God curses Adam and Eve both because of their rebellion before him. And because of this, you, the person sitting next to you, your classmate, your friend, your cousin, your aunt, your mom, your dad, your neighbor, whoever it may be, 
carries with them that same curse that was placed on them because Adam is our first father. And sin has traveled down through our family heritage. Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve, right? Sin has traveled down through our family heritage to where every one of us has been corrupted by that original rebellion. Some people call this the doctrine of original sin, whatever you want to call it. And because of that, right, we fall under, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, the headship of Adam. If you, you don't believe me because some of you guys are like, wait, how can I be held responsible for Adam's sin? And how can I be held responsible and be guilty of Adam and Eve's transgression? Well, first of all, don't be too proud of yourself. You would have probably messed up too. But on top of that, right, you want this to, you want this to be true, and I'm going to show you why in just a second. Go with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Right, look at what Paul says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Notice what Paul's saying there? Death came into the world because of Adam, all sin because of Adam, and death came into the world because of sin, but you also sin, so don't just blame Adam. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. All right, so here's what Paul's trying to distill down for his readers. He's saying, hey, look, we all are underneath the curse that Adam passed down to us. The theological term would be federal headship. Right? We all fall underneath of that. And so to summarize this, right, so this is Paul, right, teaching this in this letter to the Romans, right, to summarize this, let, let me just say, this is, this is what the Bible teaches about you, your nature, and your character. You are not a basically good person that does bad things. You are a bad person who does display that you're a bad person by doing bad things. And that when you do good things, they're not really good things. They're usually good actions that are rooted in bad motives. How many of you guys volunteer your time just for the sake of volunteering your time? One hand. How many of you guys volunteer your time and serve others because it might look good on a college resume or a job resume or might make you look good in front of somebody else? Seeing more hands go up and a lot of dishonest people. Or a lot of this, too. <laughs> We're all the same. Just raise the hand up. That's total depravity at play, guys. That even, even when you seek to do good, it's often rooted an impure love of self and hatred of God motives. Right? If you don't believe me, I mean, Jesus says this himself in Luke chapter 6. Because I know some of you guys are still struggling with me. You're like, well, I don't like being called bad. Sorry. Right? Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Right? Jesus is saying, look, look, guys, what is displayed externally is only showing what's going on internally. And there's this lie that we tend to perpetuate and believe that we're basically overall just good people that we do bad things every once in a while. And I would just tell you that is unbiblical. Now, anybody else really pumped up and encouraged yet? This is where God turns everything on its head. Because that, that's the story of the human race. Yet 2,000 years ago, God changed the entire trajectory of the human race by sending Jesus Christ. Right, the gospel, the good news of what God has done says this. God invaded humanity in, in the person of Jesus, that Jesus lived a sinless life, because he wasn't born of man, he wasn't under the headship of Adam. Lived a sinless life, and then, through no fault of his own, suffered and died on the cross for crimes that he did not commit or do. And that what was happening when Jesus went to the cross is that he was dying in our place to satisfy God's wrath and punishment for our depravity and sinful rebellion. He was raised from the dead to prove that he had defeated sin and death once and for all. And now, through Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, God has made a way and offers us new life, new identity, and I would go so far as to say this, new desires and passions that are no longer like our old ones, that are in line with God and his word and his character and his nature. If you don't believe me, let's read the rest of Romans 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Right? So now he's comparing and contrasting Jesus with Adam. Okay? For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought what? Justification. You guys don't know what justification means? It means God declares you not guilty when you are guilty. You are guilty. God looks at you, says you're not guilty because Jesus paid the penalty and took that on for you. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus redeems his people. He makes a way when there was no way 
He takes bad people who are incapable of, of making or bearing good fruit. And he changes their entire DNA composition to being a good tree. This, this is why when we talk about language of Christians saying that you must die with Christ and live to him, that you have to die to self so that the new tree can be there to bear good fruit. Jesus redeems his people. He calls them to new life in God. And that new life means pursuing God's character, his nature, his desires, his heart, and holiness. Paul has everything that I just talked about in mind as he's writing here at the beginning of chapter 3. I believe that. That as he, that he begins unveiling right, this desire for, for Timothy and the church at Ephesus to be unique and distinct from the world around them, he has all of that in mind. He wants them to understand the magnitude of what God has done for them in Christ so that in that they would pursue holiness and being different, not to earn God's favor, but because they already have God's favor, because they are already in his, are his. And because they are already his, they can live for him, for his glory. And as the church pursues holiness, Paul wants to remind them how difficult it's going to be. And his call to them is to be distinct and to be like Jesus. So when you turn back over to, to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, right, look at what he says, right? He says, so understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. He says, Timothy, to pursue holiness is not going to be easy. The world around you is not going to make it easy, and man, the church is sometimes going to make it not easy. And he says this, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, like, if you wanted to, right, because if you just look at it, it looks like Paul just kind of like throws up all the things he doesn't like about culture around him. He just lists a ton of stuff, and that list is not meant to be exhaustive. But I, I would just say this. There's a couple of categories there, and I actually think Paul is, is very strategic about the categories that he kind of lays out there. Right? The first category would be love of self. Right? He's, he calls people lovers of self, lovers of money, and then if you go down to verse 4, he says they're lovers of pleasure rather than God. Meaning that there, there can be a root in most sin that's self-centered. And if you move on, right, he says they're arrogant. He uses terms like proud, arrogant, ungrateful, swollen with conceit, unappeasable. Then he goes on to say that that arrogance can lead to rebelliousness, that they're disobedient to parents, they're without self-control, right? And if you're kind of like, how is self-control rebellious? You ever thought, think about the fact that your lack of self-control means you're rebellious to yourself? Isn't that weird? I don't want to do that. I did it like watching my kids. <laughs> this great story of my, my pastor friend, Aaron Prophet. He's a pastor of the Aletheia Church in Tampa. And he was talking about total depravity with me one time. And he goes, dude, 
I can see it now. I see how it works. I'm like, what? I'm like, wow. He's like, I saw it in my son. He's like, I'm like, all right, to tell. You know, and I'm like 23, so I don't really get it yet. And he's like, so we have my oldest son, Drew, in the high chair the other day. And, you know, little kids love gravity and science experiments. And so they love to take their food and drop it on the floor so that their parents have to pick it up. And, and you'll pick it up and you'll sit it back on the, in the, on the high chair and they'll pick it up, look at you and smile and <laughs> drop it again. Like every kid does this at some point, by the way. Okay. So, so they understand that Drew's old enough now to understand no and yes and and they correct him. They're like, Drew, no, do not do that. And Drew looks at him, smiles, and drops it. Right? So they take him out, and they discipline him, and they stick him back in the high chair. And he looks at him with tears in his eyes and picks it up and drops it on the floor again. And they take him out, and they discipline him and correct him and stick him back in the high chair again. And he said, Kevin, I'll never forget this. He grabbed him and went, and then dropped it again a third time. Guys, no one taught Drew to do that. It's in his nature. Right? And you look exactly the same way, just you aren't cute like a toddler. Right? To lack self-control is to be rebellious even towards yourself and the standards you have set. He goes on to say that, that rebelliousness leads to unholiness. You don't know what that word means? It basically just means you're opposed towards God and what he desires. You're in opposition to God. Right? If you called someone unholy, they might be like, oh yeah, I guess I'm unholy. But if I said you are in opposition and rebellion towards God, like, oh. He says that these people are unholy. They're heartless and they hate good. They do not love good. And that unholiness leads to being openly hostile. They're abusive, slanderous, brutal, treacherous, reckless. Guys, I will tell you, being a human for long enough, I can speak with authority on this. That's often the pattern that it follows. That sin starts out as love of self, it moves into rebellion and arrogance, it moves to ultimately to opposition towards God and open, often to open hostility. And that's how it's deceptive. Because it starts out as something simple, like, oh, I just really want this, and God seems to say no. Like, is God right on this one? And it ends in open hostility. This is why so often, right, sin seems like a good idea in the beginning. Guys, it always leads to destruction. This list is the opposite of what God desires for his people. It is the exact opposite. Right? If you would say love of self, arrogance, rebelliousness, unholiness, being openly hostile are character traits of those who don't love God, the opposite would be that we would love God, that we would walk with humility. That we'd be obedient, that we would pursue holiness and God's character and love it and speak highly of it, that we'd be peaceful, that we'd be loving. Church, pause and think for a minute. This is what God asks of us as his people. 
It's what he sent his son to die in your place for. Not just so we could come on Sunday morning and sing a few songs and pray when it's convenient. God sent his son to die for you so that you might live an abundant life in his image and likeness. Because there's joy in that. To be aware of sin like this and to pursue the opposite, to pursue the character and the heart of God. And look, it's easy to look at the culture and say, I see that. We all watch the news. Or you get on the internet and read it, whatever you do. But Paul is just, the interesting thing to me is as is you read chapter 3, you think Paul is calling out the culture and telling the church to be just distinct from the culture, but his, his, his biggest pushback and charge is going to actually be to examine the church and push back at it against the church. It's almost as if Paul looks out on the church and if he was here this morning, he would say to us, guys, I want you to be distinct and different. And then we might say, yes, okay, I hear that. Let's, let's go. Let's, let's get involved in politics. Let's go be businessmen and businesswomen. Let's go be doctors and we're going to invade the culture. And that would certainly be what God would want us to do. But the primary arena he wants us to push back in and fight for is not in the culture, but inside the church, inside our own communities. Because he says, look at verse 5. I think this is so telling. These people, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. He says, look internally first. The first place we, we seek to root this out and see the character of God put on display is not in the culture, but inside the church. And church, I would submit this to you. The biggest problem we have right now in this country is that we're trying to change the culture instead of change the church to be like Jesus. And that is not a political statement. It starts with us the people of God taking him and his word seriously. By relishing, relishing and worshiping the fact that Jesus gave his own flesh and blood for us. And in that, pursuing him, we are called to be different. We look internally and we root out that sin, not for our justification, but for God's glory and to put his power on display. And then we change by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul shares these, these things with us because he says, look guys, be aware of this. This is a problem inside the church. And it's deceptive and it's deceitful. And then he moves into verse five and he says, you need to be on guard against this sinfulness. You need to be prepared to give a defense against it. You need to be prepared to stand up against it. Right? And I want you to start looking at the second half of verse 5. The first piece of advice Timothy gives to, I mean, Paul gives to Timothy and to the church when dealing with this type of behavior in the church. Look what he says. It's not complicated. Avoid such people. 
Guys, this is a difficult pill to swallow, but this means the majority of our time and where we are investing our growth in Christ should not be with people that pull our attention away from him. I, I, I know that's hard for some of you guys to hear. But the campus ministry I was a part of when I was in college used to have a beautiful illustration for this. They would draw a picture of a chair and they would put a, a crown on top of that chair showing that Jesus was Lord or King. And then you would get to a seat at the table or on the seat with him. And they'd always say it's a lot easier to be pulled off the chair than it is to pull somebody else up on it. Right, that there is this propensity to think that, that where we invest our time and who we spend our time with is not going to have an effect on us. And guys, it does. This means both inside and outside the church, there's an intentionality to how we pursue holiness. That we, that we might even have what you would call goals and plans is how, how we pursue that. This means that inside the church, we care about one another, but we pursue holiness and we hold one another accountable. This means that if, guys, if you're in a church or you're in Christian community and you are in open sin and people are telling you to stop and begging with you to stop, they don't hate you, they love you. They care about your soul. It's not judgmental, it's loving. I don't think Pastor Daniel could have put it any better last week, but he was talking about this last week, that the biggest lie the church believes is that when Jesus says, judge not lest, yes, lest you would be judged, he's not referring to completely throwing judging out. He's just telling you to be aware of the fact that when you judge others, you yourself are going to be judged in the same manner. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says the beautiful thing about Christian relationships is that we give one another a hunting license. And that means it's open season when you are friends with me to go after my sin when you see it. God has given you that authority. Say, Kevin, I see, I see stuff in you that, that is unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. I would encourage you to repent and turn to Christ. Guys, that wouldn't be hating me, that would be loving me. And this is what God calls us to. But outside the church, it means we're evangelistic, but not conformed to their behavior. It means we don't, we don't play this game where we morph and become different people in different communities. Guys, that's hard, okay? You are going to be made fun of sometimes by your non, non-believing, non-Christian friends. I'm sorry. Jesus is better than their opinion of you, though. He is. This means they're not going to understand you. Good. They shouldn't. They're depraved. They're like their first father, Adam. You have a different dad now. You're under the headship of Christ. And living distinctly yet loving them points them to the same person who saved you can save them. And I said earlier, the primary warning is inside the church. This is the primary warning. This is why like, when, when we sometimes as, as believers talk about things like church discipline or whatever else, this is why it's so important because look at what was happening inside this church because Timothy wasn't taking this seriously. Starting in verse 6. 
For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So he says, look out for those who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power because what they ultimately want to do is they want to creep into households. They want to capture weak women. That's specific to this church, by the way, ladies. I'm not calling you weak. Trust me, I've seen plenty of women do the same thing to men. He says these women, right, inside Timothy's church were, were burdened with sins, meaning past sins. They couldn't get past them and move past them. And that they were led astray by various passions, which were present sins. And that what these people were doing were taking them captive. Meaning if the church doesn't take holiness seriously, people get taken captive and held hostage inside of the church. Guys, I have seen this play out and it is very, very sad and very dangerous. I've seen people taken captive financially. I've seen people taken captive emotionally. I've seen people experience spiritual abuse because of this type of behavior. I've seen people experience sexual abuse because of this type of behavior. The warning here is not everyone who has the appearance of a Christian is automatically one to be trusted, that they should be exhibiting a pattern of behavior consistent with obedience to Christ. Because if you look at verse 7, these people are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What is true never changes. And so if we see characters in our brothers and sisters around us that are not in line with the Scripture, we call them to pursue obedience and repent, or they're displaying character that's not in step with repentance and holiness. The pattern you will follow if you are a Christian here this morning, the pattern of your life will be this for the remainder of your days on this planet. Repentance and faith. That's it. Repentance and faith is not something you observe at youth camp one time and then never do it again. Repentance and faith are a daily surrender of yourself to Jesus. That by faith you admit and confess your sin and turn to God's way over your own, inviting others to come alongside you and help. And by faith, you trust that Jesus was sufficient to both forgive you for that sin and empower you to overcome it and put it to death so you might walk in obedience and freedom. That's what it means to be a Christian. And you will spend the rest of your life doing that. You might go through seasons where you're doing it more than others, and you might go through seasons where you're doing it less than others, but you, there will not be a day of your life until Jesus calls you home that you will not be observing that practice. And that's what makes what Christ did so beautiful. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we don't take this seriously, if we don't avoid such people, as Paul puts it here, and take holiness seriously, we get duped. We start following people and doing things that are not after God's heart and intention. Like, look at what he says in verse 8. Some of you guys may be familiar with this story and know what he's talking about. I had forgotten about this until I was preparing for this sermon. He says, Just as Janus and Jambres 
opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the, the, the faith. Now, if you guys are familiar with the, the story in Exodus of Moses, one of the first things Moses does is God sends him before Pharaoh. And, and he walks in with his staff, and he says, God has sent me to tell you to let his people go, that they're no longer to be held captive. You're to free them and send them on their way. And of course, Pharaoh's like, get out of here, dude. Like, no way. Right? And, and so to put God's power on display, one of the things God does is he has Moses throw his staff to the ground. And when his staff is thrown to the ground, it turns into a serpent. Now, I don't know about you guys. I'm not a big fan of snakes. And so if I'm Pharaoh, I'm going to be like, whoa, what in the heck is going on here? Right? Well, Pharaoh had these magicians that were in his court, and two of them were these guys that are named here in verse 8. And they come out, and they throw down their own staff, and guess what happens? Turns into a snake. Right? And so Pharaoh's like, oh, this is some kind of sorcery. Like, I don't have to believe this. this is, God's not really behind this. You know, whatever. You guys, you're just performing some sort of illusion. My magicians can do the same thing. Get out of here. Now, if you know the next part of the story, right, Moses' snake goes over and eats their snake. And then Moses casually picks the staff back up, but no one seems to care about that while they're sitting there. But what, what Paul is pointing out to us is we become like Pharaoh when we don't avoid such people that we can be easily led astray by stuff that gives the appearance of godliness but is not actually rooted in his power. But that God's truth always prevails. And so here's some practical things right? we as a church can do to guard against sinfulness. Number one, know God's word. Right, studying like we have this morning can reveal these things to us. Number two, seek obedience and satisfaction in Christ. Right, not, not in someone else's opinion, not in someone else's rules. No, in Jesus and what he says of us. Number three, be in community. Guys, church is supposed to be more than just an hour plus that you spend on a Sunday morning. There are people in this church that I am so close with that I would rather spend my holiday with them than my own flesh and blood. And that's not banging on my own family. That's because of how much I love men and women inside this church because of what they've walked through with me and when they've been there for me and when they've called me out for sin and to place my joy and my faith and my trust in Jesus. That's why I want to be around them. That's what the church is designed to be for us. By not being involved in Christian community, you're not hurting the church, although you are, but you're ultimately robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself of the joy of being with God's people and his family. To walk with them, to know them, to bear their burdens and have them bear yours with you through honesty, transparency, and authenticity. And then one of the last ways we practically guard against sinfulness is our final point. Know and preach to yourself that God's truth always prevails. And look at verse 9. But they will not get very far, 
for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men, referring to Jonas and Jambres. I love Paul because when, whenever he's preaching or he's teaching a hard truth or giving a command to the readers, he always takes them back to the good news. Always. And here's the promise. Right, for those that are inside the church and outside the church trying to pull people away from God, they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all. Right, ultimately, right, Paul's saying God will not be mocked in the end. God calls us to care about holiness because he is holy. As God says that to Israel very, very early on, be holy because the Lord your God is holy. God calls us to recognize our folly and his rightness, to repent and trust that Jesus died for us to forgive us, but rose to new life to give us new desires and to change and to grow and to follow him in obedience. To do what Adam should have done and to follow Jesus as he did do it. Right, the call here that we see in verse 9, Paul just says this, right? If someone is openly sinful, it may seem fine now, it's going to catch up to them either in this life or the one to come. And this is hard sometimes. Like, like You may be in a workplace situation where someone's being dishonest or talking about you to their boss or whatever may be going on, and it, it, would, it would seem right to take vengeance and to respond. And I would just say this. You may see that here and now. You may not. But God will not be mocked. I'll just say this, for the 50, 60, 70, or 80 years you may have on this planet is nothing but a drop in eternity. If you're affected by difficulty in this life, here's God's word to you. God will have the final say. You are his. Follow him. So here's how I want to finish our time this morning, right? I want you to think back to that first sentence that Paul shared with us in verse 1. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Guys, deception is all around us. And our church, by the way, is not immune to it. I just want to throw that out there. Deception is among us in the world, in the culture, and in the church. Right? The world tells us you can be good enough Right? Try hard, make enough money, live this way, and we'll accept you and elevate you. And as long as you do it within our parameters, you're good to go. You'll get a seat at the table. The church sometimes says something very similar. You need to earn God's favor. Live and follow the way we tell you to, and everything will be okay with you and with God. Right? Daniel mentioned this last week, and I'm going to mention again. There is a group on the campus of the University of Florida, which is telling people that they need to follow them, be discipled by them, and be baptized them other than, than, other than, and if they don't, then they're not believers. Guys, that is a cult. Avoid such people. Then our church is currently ministering to no less than six to ten people that have been recently pulled out of that group. 
It's real. Like to get, have Daniel and I mention th- those two groups from the pulpit means there's something going on. And they're trying to rob you of your joy in Christ, but more importantly, they're robbing God of his rightful place and power for what he did. You know, if you add works to the gospel, you nullify Christ's need to die for you. That's why this matters. I don't know about you guys. I'm not interested in robbing Jesus of any of his power and glory and honor. So they say you must live this way to earn God's love, to earn his favor. Follow us. We know the way. Guys, and then there are other expressions of the church that will tell you this. God died for you. He sent Jesus. There's no need for you to pursue obedience. Live how you want. It doesn't matter. Jesus is the the monopoly card that gets you out of jail free. And that's not the gospel. Jesus died to free you from your slavery and bondage to sin. He died to free you from your slavery and bondage to your sinful nature. He died and rose again to free you from the bondage and the headship of Adam. So that you would fall under the headship of Christ. To know God, to love Him, to follow Him, to serve Him. And the call to us Churches, is will we stand up to this? Will we be ready for the danger and the difficulty and the deception ahead? Because truth will prevail. God will not be mocked. Folly, the folly will be made plain to all. God always reveals truth to his people. You guys ever think about that? I would, I would go so far as to say everything I read this morning would be the opposite of something I would see on the nightly news. I promise you 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, a millennium from now, God's word will still be here. That newscast will not. Because God's truth will prevail. Church, let us pursue together being different. Let us pursue being distinct so that we might make much of Christ together. Let's avoid such people And when we say avoid, we don't mean shun. We mean recognize what authority we would allow them to have in our lives and point them to Jesus. Let's rest in Christ. Right, Repenting of sin, confessing our sin to Jesus, confessing our sin to community and pursuing obedience to Christ together and caring about it. Let's trust the gospel. Let's trust Jesus that he's given us a new identity in him, that we are in God's family now. We're forgiven, we're loved, we're adopted. Then let's go out from this place today, being the church, as I say at the end of every service, being salt and light to the world around us, living in the world, but living by God's standards so that we can know his word, prioritize community, seek obedience, and make much of our king and savior. Because he's worthy.